Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. You know, I knew I needed to go to rehab way before I went to rehab. And I knew that I'm not supposed to be getting high. It's not going to end well. And so I had that knowledge in the back of my head always, like I knew I had to get sober again. So basically it's like, how long do you, how much time do I want to waste? And for every day for a really long time, I knew I had to go to treatment and I just couldn't do it because it's easier just to like smoke more than to get your life together. You know, that's a lot of work and it's a lot of feelings that I'm trying to avoid. I don't want to be like, oh, let me go to rehab, let me pack, let me figure out well, who's going to watch my dogs. Let me like face my my demons head on. No, I'm just going to reach for a joint. You know, that's just easier. Let's forget about it till tomorrow. So, um what happened was that I wrote about in the book, I eventually started throwing up from from marijuana toxicity and that scared the shit out of me. And also my doctor told me my lung capacity was at 65%. So I was like, you know what? Like I, when, the, when I started vomiting, I got really scared. I'm like, okay, now you're like physically poisoning yourself. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Pam, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about your book, uh, your, you know, about you or your work by way of your publicist. And when I saw the title of your book was called Don't Bring Your Vibrator to Rehab, I was like, okay, that's interesting. That got my attention immediately. Um, and I just finished reading it this morning. But before we get into the book and your work, um, I wanted to start by asking, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, what I learned from my parents, my dad, I think my dad just taught me that, you know, I mean, my dad's super smart and I think I'm kind of smart and I got that from him, but just to, you know, not really trust everyone. A lot of people are, are, you know, not real full shit and stuff like that. Um, I think my mom, my mom taught me like how to be confident and stand up for yourself and, you know, kind of like ask for what you want. And, you know, I think also 
I made me like very independent. So I think that's something good that I got from her. Yeah. So your dad tell you not to always trust people and, you know, assume that there are people who are full of shit. How do you balance that with having sort of a view of the world where you're open-minded enough to meet new people and be optimistic that, you know, there are good people? I think I, I think I have a really good judge of character and I've never been the type of person that's like been conned or even with men or anything like that. Like, I think I'm, I'm pretty real and I think that I attract the same kind of person. So that's like, you know, I, I think I just see through people. Like I have a very good, like very good, very good judge of character yeah. and common sense. Mm. <laughs> well, so growing up, did your parents give you any particular advice about making your way in the world, you know, career paths, you know, in terms of choosing? Because I mean, I think anybody who goes into a career in the arts knows they're kind of signing up for a life where nothing is guaranteed and anything is possible. Absolutely not. My parents did not guide me. <laughs> they, uh, my father actually had uh, kind of a bad attitude about me being a writer. Um, like, you know, what are the chances you're going to be as successful as, you know, name, insert famous person's name here. So um, I think my mother was a little more encouraging with all my creative endeavors. But, um, you know, my, my father's like a businessman and I'm more like an artist. So it's like left brain, right brain. Mm -hmm. so he never really understood that side of me and like i think as i've gotten older and had more accomplishments he has so that was just it was just he never something he understood he didn't he doesn't think like that so i was not really encouraged especially even with my comedy he was like you're not funny (laughs) so i mean how in the face of you know such discouragement from somebody so close to you like family do you find it in you to keep going and keep doing this thing? That's a good question. I, it's just who I am. Like, I'm not going to go get a job at a bank, you know, like I can't really like turn that, that side off, like turn that, that part of me off. Like, I'm, you know, I like to create, I like to write, I like to make people laugh and I'm an artist. And it's just, it's just who I am. It's just like, I can't be somebody I'm not. Yeah. So. You said your mom was encouraging of it. Um, how so? Like, you know, what was her view on you choosing to go and do comedy and, and write and, you know, do these kinds of bizarre creative things that nobody, you know, some of us are lucky enough to make a living at. <laughs> My mom thinks I'm really funny. So that's good. <laughs> um I think she's more, it's just not, it's not really anything she would do. I mean, I, I'm creative like in, in so many different ways. So I, I definitely got that from her, but like more of the artistic side, but my mom's kind of funny too. And we just like have good rapport. And I think, um, I think she's always a little bit shocked about what I do or the first time I, I, she saw my comedy, but she's, she's never said a negative thing. Like she's like, I'm proud of you. And she laughs. So, you know, that's like, that's a good sign. Yeah. Well, memoir in particular is like a interesting genre because there's this sort of delicate balancing act of telling the truth and also, you know, the risk of potentially like alienating people in your family. I think the reason this is just so fresh in my mind is I was rewatching this television series, October Road, which just uh, it, it's pretty old, but it's a story about a writer who writes a fiction book about this hometown that he left 10 years ago. And then he comes back 10 years later and all the people that are in the book, uh, which was turned into a movie, are all characters from his life and they all recognize it. And he, yeah, he wasn't kind in the way he portrayed a lot of them. And so the whole series is about him kind of trying to reconcile 
with all these people. And I, I remember even Mary Carr in her book, Art of Memoir, writing about this. But when you are dealing with sort of delicate subject matter, how do you find that balance between telling the truth and not eviscerating the people in your life? Well, I, first of all, <clears throat> I'm not an idiot and I don't want to alienate people. So if I'm writing about, let's say like a car- like a friend or someone to pass through my life, or that's more like to me, like a character, um, I, I'll just change their name and I, I have nothing invested in them anyway. And they'll probably never read it and don't even know who they are. But for like family, I have a very small family and <clears throat> I would never, I would never say anything if something's really bad or the truth, I'm not even going to talk about it. I, I mean, I think I was very kindly spoke about people in my book and very, um, you know, I, I just, I just wrote the truth without delving too deep. I'm not going to like, you know, this isn't a book about my family and our issues. So, you know, I kind of kept that pretty um, short, but <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. So, like I said, I would never like intentionally hurt anyone. I, I'm, I'm, you know, anyone else that I mentioned there is a friend and it's funny, but if, if I have something, I'm just not that kind of person. And if I have like, I, I want to keep things positive and upbeat. So it's, if I have like a lot of negative things to say about someone, I'm probably just not going to write about them because <laughs> yeah. that's not like what I want the focus to be. Hmm. Well, walk me through sort of the career trajectory that has led you to writing this book because i know you did a bunch of other things before writing a book you owned a business like walk me through what in the world led you down this path oh my god talk about a 20 minute answer i i've done a lot of different things i i mean i always kind of wrote but i when i was in my 20s i wrote a few full-length books and i had agents and i did not get published and it was a very frustrating you know, very frustrating experience. And writing a book takes a lot of time. It did for me. And when you get rejected over and over, you're just like, and no one's paying you to do it. I finally just put that whole, like the whole writing thing on the back burner. And I started, um, I started actually an adult t-shirt, a line of adult t-shirts that I designed. And I mean, I did so many other little things. I so I had the I had um, that line, and then I, I made some kids T shirts, and somebody introduced me to a, a rep that it was a kids a kids clothing rep, and she's like, "Oh, I love your stuff. You're gonna do. You're my. You're gonna be in my trade show. I'm representing you." And I wound up that just took off, and I really loved it. And I did that for like ten years. So um, I had a you know girls line called Pamela Joe, and a boys line called Handsome Jack, and it was really successful, and it was really fun, and. Um, I did that till about 2009, 2008. And then I did other things. I, I've made art. I've been in shows and galleries. I've made jewelry. I self-published a book a long time ago. That was a very short hu- offbeat humor book um, called Girls Are Weird. What else did I do? <clears throat> um, so basically what happened was I was... And then I've done stand-up comedy and when the pandemic hit, I just started writing because there was nothing else to do. And it was something I could do from my home and I didn't have to see anybody. And I had written this book, uh, Don't Bring Your Vibrator to Rehab. I had written that a few years ago. And finally, I just said to myself, I'm, I'm going to publish it. Mm. And that's, you know, that's where basically where we are today. Wow. 
So, I mean, if you built a, a successful clothing line and done all this stuff, what in the world would make you want to leave that to come back to something like writing where you and I both know the reality of what it is to write a book where you know, you're lucky if, you know, if a thousand people read your book, that's a big success. Mm-hmm. I know, I know. Well, what happened was when, you know, the market crashed in 2008, I really didn't have a business anymore. So it wasn't really by choice. Okay. And yeah, so, you know, all the stores that I would sell, that I sold to like closed and I kind of was like lost for a little bit, but that was okay. You know, everything leads to the next, the next thing that you do. And I was kind of like, not burned out, but I, I think I, you know, had a good run with it and I was very happy with that. And that's, that's what happened. So it wasn't really by choice. <laughs> and same thing with the writing. I mean, I don't know if there wasn't a pandemic, if I would have, you know, thought this way and written more things. I don't know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like, what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then. 
right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, I think part of what, you know, struck me as somebody who smokes my fair share of weed was when I, I saw this whole thing about addiction to weed, I was like, okay, you know what? I probably should have a conversation with you because I am very curious about this. But uh, how old were you when you tried your first drug? Probably 14 or 15. I, I, I smoke pot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then was And then just... I think I drank probably around the same age, like 15. Okay. And how long did it continue? Like, uh, was it one of those things where it just was prevalent up until, you know, you finally quit? But like, and of course, I mean, I've read the book, so I know where it leads. But uh, because I think that, you know, I mean, I grew up in the Just Say No era. It was just like, oh, drugs are terrible. Like, you know, everybody who does drugs basically falls apart. And then I go to school at a place like Berkeley and I have friends who drop acid the night before a midterm get a perfect score while I studied my ass off and failed. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Um, so, um, I, I smoked pot in high school, you know, like, like a normal teenager. And then I had a really bad experience one night where I thought it was laced and I was like screaming and had a panic attack and made my friends take me home and knocked on my parents' door and said, I'm, I need to go to the hospital. Like it was crazy and it was really scary. And that happened some point in high school and I didn't smoke pot again for a really long time. And so it, I was like a little bit afraid of it. And I was also afraid of trying anything else after that. Cause I'm like, well, if this could happen to me from smoking weed, what's going to happen to me when I try Coke or anything like that, which luckily I never, I never did. And then after college, I, I didn't really smoke in college either, like here a little bit here and there. And then after college, a friend left a bong in my apartment and I, I literally just started smoking all the time <laughs> and, until I was um, 26. And I was also drinking a lot at the time, like a bottle of wine by myself every night and smoking a joint. And then I was happy when I had all that in me. And then somebody came into my life when I was 26 who had been, you know, his family wasn't speaking to him. He lost everything. He was divorced. He lost his place where he lived. and. He was a few days out of a six-month rehab, and um, our paths crossed, and um, we wound up spending a lot of time together, and he ended up self-stopping me and telling me, you know, he just, you know, was observing me drinking and getting high around him all the time, and which I didn't really know you shouldn't do in front of someone who just got out of treatment, and he eventually convinced me to go to my first AA meeting, which, Yeah. Well, let's come back to that. Um, I want to go back to adolescence and, you know, being teenagers. I mean, I grew up in an Indian family, so, like, it was pretty taboo to even suggest that, you know, we would do drugs or anything like that. And I still remember to this day when my parents found out the first time I got stoned. It was, I think I must have been, like, well into my late 30s, and my mom was complaining about some medication that she needed for surgery uh, or that, that was causing all these, you know, side effects. And I looked at her, I was like, you know what, I'll help with that. And she looked at me, and she was like, what? I'm like, medical marijuana. And, 
And then she's like, do you smoke pot? I was like, I went to Berkeley. What do you guys think? She's like, we're not idiots. We're your parents. We found your drug paraphernalia before. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. like, all right, great. Well, now that's in the, out in the open. I was like, you should know your precious daughter who, you know, is the chief anesthesiology resident at Yale has been getting stoned since high school. <laughs> like, huh. you know, so my sister mm-hmm. was like, wait, you threw me under the bus too. But, uh, it, I mean, it was, it was interesting because I mean, there was a very explicit message that, you know, we do not do this. Like, it's not something we should do. So given your background and your experience, for parents listening to this, what do you think that parents should be teaching their kids about drugs? Because one of my friends told me, he said, you know, the message I got from things like dare was don't do this. It feels really good. That's funny. You know, I'm not a parent (laughs) and, uh, that's an, I'm, I don't know if I've ever thought about it, but I think, I think first of all, have an open, honest conversation with your kids. And I think that, you know, especially if addiction runs in your family, have that conversation. And I would, you know, not, you know, just warn them and say, listen, this runs in our family and you could become addicted to it. But I think most kids are going to experiment no matter what you tell them. And, you know, I've, I know some parents that are like, okay, you want to try pie, you can try it with us or try it in the house the first time. And, you know, stuff like that. I, I'm not an expert on parenting or what people should tell their kids, but I think my parents weren't very strict. They didn't say, don't do, they didn't really say anything. So I wasn't like a bad kid or anything because it wasn't just like a strict house. And we were, my brother and I were like kind of just normal kids. So it wasn't like, you know, punishment or I don't even know, like, I guess we had a curfew. I don't remember, but I would just, you know, have just like try to have a honest dialogue with your kids about it and just, you know, keep your eye on them. And, you know, some kids are going to try pot and they're going to like it and they'll smoke a little bit here and there. And some kids aren't going to like it and some are going to want to smoke all day and night. You know, it's, it's hard to predict who's going to be that person. Yeah, that's, just be, you know, there for them. Well, that's that's actually what I, I'm curious about is uh, because I, I look at friends of mine who ended up going to become doctors and, you know, quite successful later in life. And I, I think about the drugs they did in college and I was like, how does this even add up? So what is that line between sort of somebody who casually uses drugs to somebody who ends up being, you know, an addict? I mean, if you can't predict it, because. I, I'm always kind of stunned. Like I had a roommate who uh, was wildly successful. He was the number five employee at a startup that every single person listening to this has heard of and used every day. And I remember when we moved in together, this was like 10 years after he had worked at a startup. He was like, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. So there's literally, I didn't see him take a single drink. And he told me, he was like, yeah, this is an addiction that runs my family. But uh, because I think that there's a sort of perception that addicts and, and people end up rehab are just deadbeats and losers. But here I am looking at my friend who's cashed out on, you know, a ton of stock options and well off enough that he didn't have to work for money for a while who found himself in rehab. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah, go ahead. You know, addiction like doesn't discriminate and, um, I, you know, some of the smartest, most successful people are are addicts and alcoholics. And, you know, one of the things that makes it harder for people that are smart and successful to get in recovery, into recovery is because they look at their lives. And if you're like a functioning alcoholic or a functioning addict, you're like, I'm I'm making so much money. I'm the head of this. I'm the president of that. I don't have a problem. But it's not, you know, it's not about that. And I think that keeps a lot of people, it makes it a lot harder for them to get help. It's not, 
you know, it's easy for the people that are in the street and homeless and, you know, getting arrested and having all these massive consequences. But, you know, it's, it's harder for successful people because they think they're smart. They think they can control it. They think they know what the problem is. And you can't figure out addiction in your, in your head. You're not going to figure it out. You're not going to solve it. You know, my friend said to me, he's like, you're smart. He goes, don't be too smart for AA. He's like, be dumb, you know, be, be teachable, be willing to learn and be willing to listen. And people that are out there that are quote functioning, but a mess, that's, it's really hard. You know, it's hard to, you know, hit a bottom and until things just have to get so, so bad for some people, unfortunately. And then, then they see the light, but you know, also you have to think about how much, how unmanageable is your life? Like, you know, how much better would it be if you weren't juggling getting high all day with running a company and taking care of a family and all that? So it's it's hard because it's really a self-diagnosed, um, you know, disease. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to ask you is, you know, like, where is that sort of level of awareness of I might have a problem or I do this casually? Like, I smoke my fair share of weed, but I had my sort of default rule. I honestly, it's like... I think my role is never before the sun goes down because I want to get shit done. Uh, mm. And, you know, I have running a company and running a business. And at the same time, like reading your book made me really kind of think through this. Like, I'm sure you've seen that scene in Half Baked where Dave Chappelle goes to rehab for weed and you know, Bob Sackett replies. He's like, you're here for weed. I suck dick for cocaine. Right. That No, it's true. I mean, I went to rehab for weed and people were like, what's your drug of choice? And I told them and they're like, that's it. They're basically like, why are you here? Yeah. Um, so I, I get that. And I don't care. You know, like my life, you might be doing that. I might be doing this, but I'm just as miserable as you are. I think there's two there's two signs that that you can tell if you have a problem. One is like one is if you're is your life unmanageable? I mean, that's for you to decide. But, and there's so many different ways that people's life can be unmanageable. And the other is, and I was on Dr. Drew's podcast and he talked about this, you know, addiction, a sign of addiction is being unable to stop doing something you don't want to do. You know, (laughs) if you can't stop and you want to stop, you have a problem. And yeah. Well, I guess then you could, that, you know, begs the question of like, what if you don't want to stop? It, it, because to me, it's funny. One I of my, didn't want to stop. I mean, I my did, friends, but I didn't. Yeah. One of my, my roommates is like, yeah, I remember going home with my, my roommate for Christmas. He's like, oh, we forgot to pick up edibles. He's like, are you going to be okay? I was like, yeah, man. I'm like, I'll be fine. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. I'm like, I can go months without it and it's fine. Like, I don't have withdrawal symptoms or anything. So, so I guess, yeah. I mean, wanting to stop is one thing. Uh so how much of this is even when you just said that, even when you just said that, I yeah. felt that yeah. like that feeling of like, we don't have any, how are we going to get it? Yeah, I would not be okay with that. I would not, my, I wouldn't, my answer would not be, Oh, I'm okay. We don't need it. I'd be like, we're getting it the second we get off the plane. <laughs> I was like, we're yeah. going somewhere where they, you know, I'd it's not legal. A, I'm panicking. Okay. I'm panicking and I'm sober, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, actually, let's talk about that. Uh, you know, before rehab, like, what does your day to day life look like? Because I remember thinking, okay, being stoned twenty four seven. I've only had that experience once, and I happened to be in Amsterdam, um, where you know I was on the tail end of a trip. It was like three days left, and I literally just woke up and got stoned from morning till evening. And after I was done, I was like, you know, I, I, I'm not. I don't want to be like that. Um, yeah, I enjoy smoking weed, but that's right. definitely not for me. But at what? Like, Imagine that times two years. That was yeah. My life. Well, that's and, what. That's and so, I wish 
Yeah. I, I wish I was in Amsterdam. <laughs> well, so what does your life look like during those two years? Like just what's an average day for somebody who's stoned 24 seven. So awful. And the fact that I have to say it out loud again, is going to bring me back mentally. Um, uh, so I'd wake up and I would literally go on my terrace because I live in Miami and like literally even naked go on my terrace and do a bong hit. <laughs> and, and then I would start just texting guys. I mean, no, it was really <laughs> so sad. What did I do? I really didn't do much. I actually found someone else to get high with. I, I managed to do yoga because the other girl that I, I, the stoner friend that I made, which you only can make a stoner friends because you have no use for anybody else. Um, she got me into yoga, but besides that, I, I didn't do anything. I don't know. Like it was very sad. I mean, I was very lethargic and I was very, I was just felt like I, you know, my body was just so like weighed down by like the, the inertia of being high and try, and chasing the high all day and just smoking more and more and more. And like, just, I don't know if I walked around, I watched my 600 pound life. I literally stared at a computer screen. I tried to write. I, I couldn't write anything. I couldn't think it was sad. I, I didn't do anything. I don't even, you know, I, I couldn't even tell you what I did. I did yoga and I smoked weed and I tried to find other people to smoke weed with. <laughs> well, I think there was a point where I did make a few little, I learned how to use, um, what's the Apple uh, iMovie, which mm -hmm. I, you know, I like became obsessed with some creative idea that took me, you know, 16 times longer than it would have if I wasn't high, because I like, couldn't really focus to figure like teaching myself a computer program when I'm stoned, you know, like yeah. everything took so long, you know, and it was just like, Oh my God, I made this one minute video. It took me 16 days, you know, <laughs> Yeah. It was sad. It's I'm trying to make fun of it, but it, it wasn't it wasn't fun. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, you know, it's funny because people always ask me, like, why do you smoke weed? I'm like, because it makes four experiences better and more enjoyable. It's like music, movies, food, and sex are all better when you're high. But, uh, 100%, yeah. and, you know, and I, I've kind of like, if you ask me why I smoked, you know, if you went to, if you've seen Half Baked, the movie, you know, when they're going around talking about all the different kinds of smokers they meet and they meet Jon Stewart and he's like the intensify smoker. I was like, yeah, that's me. I'm like, I believe it intensifies mm-hmm. experiences. Uh, but, for yeah, the you. food and sex thing for me. I don't watch movies, so yeah. I, I couldn't. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, honestly, like, yeah, sex is pretty mind blowing when you're hot. Amazing, sex yeah. was amazing, and I was like. I actually thought, like, legitimately thought I can't stop smoking pot because I can't give up the sex with the being high. I can't do it. And that seems like a very legitimate thing to me that how does no one understand this? Yeah. Like, why, why am I in this club by myself? Like, you guys don't understand. Like, oh, you're not in it by yourself. Give that up? I guess I'm in it with you. <laughs> I was like, I'm like, I, I, this is, this is not going to get better. Like, I, I can't do it. And I'm like, all right, you, enough, you know. Yeah. So I, I lived. Okay. So, you know, you, you kind of mentioned what you did day to day. How did it affect the relationships with the people in your life? Like family, friends? I mean, obviously you had stoner friends, but the rest of the relationships you had. Um, you know, I really wasn't um, present. <laughs> so I was very lonely and I talk about it in the book, but I, I couldn't focus on a phone call. People knew, you know, a lot of my friends are sober because I've been around sober people for 26 years. So, and I knew when I was talking to them that they were knew I was not sober and that they were judging me. It was very awkward. And I don't know, like, you know, a lot of people didn't notice, didn't care, didn't think about it. You know, they were just my friends. And I thought I was like a zombie and not fun and not nice. But, you know, I, I was shocked that people still actually wanted to see me because even though I was lonely, I want, I, then I didn't want to go anywhere and I didn't want to see people. And if I saw people, I was tired of them in 15 minutes if they, we weren't getting high. It was just this vicious cycle of, of negativity and yeah. nothingness. And you said it's been 26 years since you've smoked a joint or had a drink? No, I haven't had a drink in almost 26 years. That's when I first got sober. No, I'm sober from weed um, two and a half years. Okay, interesting. So I'm curious, like when you're around other people or do you not even be around other people who are smoking weed? Is there temptation still every day? Um, I really try to avoid that. It's not the very safe idea for me. Occasionally it happens. Yeah. And I really like the smell of weed. So it's very enticing and intoxicating to me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't, I really don't, I don't really hang out with people that, that get high. 
I guess you and I won't be hanging out in person anytime soon. That we 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 can hang out on Zoom all you want, but <laughs> well, that's hilarious. Well, it's also hard because like pot, you know, it's in the air. The smell mm-hmm. of it, you know, I don't like edibles, and I don't want to wait two hours to get high, and <laughs> amongst other reasons. But um, yeah, you know, alcohol is like not floating around in the air. If somebody has a drink, I, I don't I don't care, you know. Um, but when the when the smell of it is is right in front of me, it's it's very tempting and not a great, not safe. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you say in the book is the pot seems so harmless, but I called it the slow boat to nowhere. I didn't crash a car, or end up in jail. I didn't destroy relationships or run out of money or lose my home, but I lost myself, my life, my soul. I was alone all day in my head with my negative thoughts telling me what a loser I am, that it will never get better, that I might as well just give up. I couldn't feel anything. So, at what point do you figure, okay, this is enough of a problem that I need to go into rehab? And then what misperceptions do you think that the media creates about the types of people who go to rehab and the experiences of rehab? Because like, you know, when you watch a, a film like Motley Crue's Dirt, it's like, oh, everybody in rehab is either rich and fucked up or you know, poor and fucked up. Yeah, that's so funny. Um, you know, I knew I needed to go to rehab way before I went to rehab. and you know, remember, like, I, I had a lot of long-term sobriety in adulthood. You know, I had eight years of sober t- two times, like eight consecutive years. So that's like 16 years of sobriety. So I knew that I'm not supposed to be getting high. It's not going to end great. You know, it's not going to end well. And so I had that knowledge in the back of my head always, like, I knew I had to get sober again. So basically, it's like, how long do you, how much time do I want to waste? And for every day for a really long time, I knew I had to go to treatment and I just couldn't do it because it's easier just to like smoke more than to get your life together. You know, that's a lot of work and it's a lot of feelings that I'm trying to avoid. I don't want to be like, oh, let me go to rehab. Let me pack. Let me figure out well, who's going to watch my dogs. Let me like face my, my demons head on. No, I'm just going to reach for a joint. You know, that's just easier. Let's forget about it till tomorrow. So. um what happened was that I wrote about in the book, I eventually started throwing up from, from marijuana toxicity and that scared the shit out of me. And also my doctor told me my lung capacity was at 65%. So I was like, you know what? Like I, when the, when I started vomiting, I got really scared. I'm like, okay, now you're like physically like poisoning yourself. So that's, that's when I stopped. And that's when I, I finally made the decision. And your other part of your question about, people going to treatment. I mean, it's funny because when I got there and, you know, you're such, you're, you're, my head was in such a fog and I just, you had no clarity. I couldn't think. And then when you start to, you know, have a few days or a week and you start to hear everyone's story and some people's stories are really bad, you know, there are people court ordered, people, you know, have people have died, people have committed suicide, people are getting divorced. Uh, you know, people that were like clinically dead on the table and came back to life and people facing long jail sentences. It's a lot. And people have really tragic, hard stories. And I I actually thought to myself, I'm like, wait, you're just like smoke a lot of weed. I'm like, go home. Your life's fine. Get your shit together, you know. But at the same time, we're all in the same place. It doesn't matter like what your story is, what my story is. It's like, we're all here. We all have the same. We all are doing something that we're powerless over and we can't stop and it's ruining our lives. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's funny you bring up, you know, people from jail sentences. I have a lot of people who have been incarcerated here as guests and 
you know, we often talk about drug offenses and drug policy and, and all that. And you know, a lot of these people say, you know, they're nonviolent offenders who are literally serving 10-year sentences for marijuana offenses. And mm. basically what we're doing is we're imprisoning people who have a health problem, not a, um, yeah. you know, they're not criminals. And yet one of the things I know you wrote about is rehab is fucking expensive. Like, I remember you writing about all the other things you could do with that money. I'm thinking to myself, yeah, all those other things sound a lot better, like a lot better ways to spend, spend your money than, you know, going to rehab. So, you know, from your perspective, when you look at this just from a straight up policy standpoint, what do you think needs to change? Um, oh, about like with yeah. and well, yeah, I mean, crimi- yeah, like and making this accessible because it's not, you know, a lot of those people end up as criminals because they can't control this. Yeah, I know that that's that's tough. And that, yeah, you should not be in jail for whatever smoking or selling marijuana for. I don't know. I, I think that people need to be given a chance and rehabilitated rather than, you know, put in a prison cell because, you know, listen, I've never been in jail. I don't know what it teaches you and what it doesn't. But also, if you don't learn something there, you're going to come out and do the same thing again, you know? So yeah. I think that if it's drug related in that sense, that, that they should be given a chance to, you know, to be rehabilitated. And also, you know, a lot, everyone, a lot of people, addicts turn their lives around, you know, everyone, they're not bad people or sick people. And, um, you know, everyone, everyone deserves to get help if they can. Yeah. But then, you know, when it's so prohibitively expensive, what is the solution to that? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, if like the state can, can, you know, have some kind of like treatment programs that are just, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's not always extensive and some of them, they do have, um, they do have, um, like scholarships because I mean, the people that I was with were definitely from all different socioeconomic backgrounds. So, and I didn't go to a particularly expensive place, but um, yeah, like that's something that people need to, to ask about as well. Yeah. Well, tell me about the actual uh, experience day to day. Like I remember reading the stuff about your phone being taken away and all your things being taken away. And I'm sitting here looking at myself like, yeah, I would be irritated as shit by some of this. Yeah, I mean the first the first day or the first few hours, I was like looking for my phone or thinking it was vibrating, just because I'm so used to hearing that. But honestly, I didn't miss it. You get used to it, and it's like you need a break from it. You really do. It's actually like a healthy thing, and it's no pressure. You're like, oh, I don't have to call this person or text this person or what's this bullshit and people that trigger you or you don't have any of that. So it's like a really good kind of like cold turkey for that, I think. And you know, one of the reasons is they don't want you distracted. And they want you to focus on you. And if I had a phone in treatment, I don't think I really would have talked to anyone there, <laughs> you know, because I would have just isolated. And, you know, addiction is like a disease of isolation. And we just want to be by ourselves in our head. And, you know, I think if they like, I think it's a very, very smart idea not to have a phone in treatment. And, you know, I didn't have any, you know, I was literally forced. I'm like, I don't want to sit here alone. So I have to go talk to these strangers. They're strangers. You know, and I'm like, I have to like break the isolation and I have to get back to like being a human and like connecting with other people. And if you have 10 other things to do and you're going to sit in your room and do it, you know, yeah, that's why they take all of it away from you. Yeah. 
So what do you do day to day? I mean, I, I remember you writing about, you know, them, you know, the facility used to have horses. They no longer did. You know, they used to have sailing. They no longer did. And I'm thinking to myself, OK, well, what do you what do you do day to day other than sit around and you know talk to other people who have similar problems? <laughs> um, it's a lot of group. It's it's basically the whole day is, is group after group. I mean, they focus a little bit on different things. But it's it's getting you to communicate with each other and to talk about what's going on with you. And there's you know, they also bring in AA meetings from the outside and um, they have that. And then they have like they have silly things like they'll have art therapy one day and, you know, um, music therapy one day. I'm, I'm saying it in a negative tone. Like to me, some of it's like silly. they had yoga. <laughs> But mostly, mostly the day is group, 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 and lunch and whatever. And that's it. And there's a lot of hangout time. People just sit outside and smoke. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. You were allowed and to smoke cigarettes. You are. <laughs> that's so bizarre. Like, why is that the exception to everything else? I I kind of agree with you. I think it shouldn't be allowed, but I think certain rehabs you can't smoke and i think so many addicts smoke and if you tell them they can't they won't come to treatment i think that they feel like you're taking everything away from them and they want to have something but i personally think they i personally feel like if you're going to quit everything and cigarettes are so unhealthy just like go for it and be done and quit everything you know so, but some people disagree and think, oh, I need that. I won't go if I can't smoke. And I mean, that's, nicotine's a drug too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, I, I personally don't agree with that, but I also don't smoke. So I used to smoke, but I, you know, I would, I just feel like just, you're going to quit, just quit everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, two questions, like what triggers relapses to the point where you end up back in rehab? I mean, in general for people and for you. I can't really answer what triggers it, but, you know, for everyone's different. I can tell you for myself, you know, they say stay away from people, places, and things that trigger you, which is basically everything, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, people, places, and things. For me personally, with marijuana, it's very, um, like, connected to sex, and I'm very, like, the smell of weed really, like, seduces me, and... Like I would love it in like sexual situations and the times I've relapsed have been with men in like a sexual situation and like somebody, they take it out and I'm like, Oh, okay, I'll do that. You know, if I haven't gotten high in eight years Mm -hmm. and that happened to me several times and it's, you know, I'm very aware of it and I know that's my, my trigger and my weak spot and try to, uh, do my best to stay away from anyone, you know, at this point like that, or who I, you know, like, I know, I know what to stay away from. Yeah. So it's really, it's not something that's premeditated for me. You know, I didn't have a bad day, you know, like Mm -hmm. nothing bad happened. That's like, it's just like, Oh wait, he's cute. He's here. Let's get high together. It's, It's really actually embarrassing to even say it, but that's my weak point. Hmm. So, like, yeah. I mean, obviously, avoiding you know situations. I mean, have you found yourself in situations like that where you've actually been able to avoid the temptation? Yeah, I have. Okay, what's the the difference between the times when you've avoided it versus the ones when you didn't? Luck, luck. <laughs> you know, I really hope that I'm you know scared enough 
to never do that again. Like I have a very, you know, vivid memory of where I end up. And, you know, they say, play the tape through. It's like, oh yeah, that sounds great right now. But like, where, are you, where is this going to really end up? You know, yeah. it's not just going to be the fun hour that you want it to be. I wish I was that person that could be like, oh, that was fun. I got stoned and we had sex and it was great. And now, no, for me, I'm like, where's, do you have more? Can I have it? You know? Hmm. Yeah, you know, because I remember you writing about this sort of distinction between short-term pleasure and long-term happiness. And there's this woman who wrote a book called Dopamine Nation. Uh, I think her name is Anna Lemke. She goes into detail about how often, you know, most of the things we're addicted to, whether it's social media, you know, whether it's drugs, you know, um, alcohol, whatever it is. She's like, you often basically are sacrificing long-term happiness for short-term pleasure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. But the thing is, like, we're all impulsive and we live in the moment. And, uh, you know, I wonder... How do you develop the awareness to actually think, uh, you know, about the consequences in the future versus, you know, the pleasure you're getting in the moment? I think, you know, maturity. uh, I think also experience, you know, like I've done that so many times. That's like the definition of insanity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like I'm able now from my relapsing experiences to say, okay, I know where that goes and I don't want to go there. Mm. And, it, you know, does it suck sometimes? Yeah. Oh, life's not fair. Oh, life's not fair because you can't get high, you know? Well, too bad. <laughs> you know, find something else to do. Yeah. It's just, it's not an option for me. Like I've, I've lived long enough and I've tried it so many times to know that that's just not, it's not going to work. It's just, it's, it makes me, it brings me to a really dark place that I know is the reality of where I'm going to end up. Mm. Well, speaking of, you know, finding something else to replace it, uh, there are a couple of questions that come to that. So you come out of rehab now, you're, you know, clear headed, you know, not stoned 24 seven. How does the world look different? Well, first of all, I was so happy to be out of rehab that I was just I literally I remember I went to like a shoe store after or a drugstore and I was just like, oh, my God, I'm so happy to be here. Like. You know, like you just feel like free, you know, I mean, when I was in treatment, they, they'll take you, they took me to the store to get food, Whole Foods or something. And they, they follow you around. Like you have like a guard, you know, so, and you're never alone. It's just, I mean, I was just so happy to like be in my nice apartment and watch TV, which normally is not very satisfying for me, but you know, I was just so grateful that I was home and that I was okay. And that. I wasn't, you know, doing that anymore. So that's like the initial, that's initially how I, I felt when I left, just so grateful to like not be there anymore and to be on the other side of it. And then, you know, and then life, you know, just keeps happening and, and you hopefully try to, you know, do healthy things, make smart choices and, you know, remember the things that you've learned and where you've been yeah. and, you know, move forward. What do you think that, having this addiction has cost you in your life, the things that you haven't been able to have because of it. I like, I, I mean, there's so many different aspects of it, you know, first of all, just the physical, like the literal time that I spent getting high and, you know, I'm not the most productive person every single day in my life, but the fact that I spent years literally ingesting a drug so I can sit and do nothing is so sad to me. And, you know, thinking about how many people are, are still doing that. Yeah. Um, it's just like literally a waste of life. It's just, I, I'm like, what did we do when we got high? We, we did nothing. 
<laughs> you know, it wasn't like we were, I mean, at certain points I was being creative, but not so much at the end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure it's cost me, you know, I'm sure, especially when I was younger and more like when I used to drink, like I'm sure it cost me relationships or, or just, you know, making bad decisions, picking the wrong people and acting the wrong ways, you know, that kind of thing. And also being, being fearful of, of life, of a lot of things kept me, held me back and thinking, you know, you're not good enough or you can't do this, you know, all the negative thoughts that we tell ourselves and then we go hide behind, you know, the drugs so we don't have to deal with it or think about it. I think all these things are connected to how your life is affected by it. And, you know, it's fine. Like everything leads to the next thing and I'm, 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 you know, I'm happy where I am, but yeah, it's, it's sad a lot. I mean, I didn't get divorced. I didn't lose my family. I didn't, you know, get evicted and stuff like that, but you know, whatever. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I mean, because like, I think I, I remember reading one other thing you wrote, I came across an article uh, you wrote on Medium about turning 50. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I grew up in an Indian family. So like the pressure to like, you know, settle down, get married, whatever is pretty much perpetual from the time you're, you know, I think 20 plus like I think uh, Hassan Manaj has a joke. He's like, your parents basically salt your game your entire life. Like, don't talk to girls, don't talk to girls. And then you turn 25. Like, why don't you have a girlfriend? Like you salted our game <laughs> for 25 years. So that's so funny. One of my closest friends is Indian, so I'm familiar, yeah. Yeah, but I think that the the there was one line in that article that struck me the most where you mentioned, you know, I was 26 and sleeping with a 48-year-old. Now I'm 50 sleeping with a 36-year-old. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I guess, you know, I want to talk about age a little bit because I think that that's, you know, I think we all fear that certain things are not going to be possible uh, when we mm-hmm. get old, which is true to some degree, like physically you're going to be incapable of certain things that you can do when you're 40 that you're not going to be able to do when you're 80. Like as an avid surfer and snowboarder, I've prioritized that because I know as I get older, my physical limitations are going to definitely kick in. Right. Well, what are you asking me? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. That's I mean, like, you seem to have had a very positive take on turning 50. Like the idea of 50 sounds dreadful to me. Like I'm 40 something. I'm like 50. I'm like, I was going to ask you, how old are you? (laughs) I'm going to be 44 this year at 50 sounds at that point. I'm like, all right, if I'm not, you know, if I'm still single at 50, I'm going to be in trouble. (laughs) It's like literally my mind, my mindset. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's tough. It's like I said, it's, it's a mind fuck, you know, all of a sudden you're like, wow. Like, how is this possible? Yeah. Um, and it's, I was really afraid. And also like I wrote about being 48 and 49, it's like, I'll just make me 50. It's so stupid. You know, <laughs> like, um, you know, I'm single. I'm, I'm actually 52 now. I just turned 52, but no, I get it. I don't, I don't know. It's, I just try to live like my best life, not to sound cliche. Like I, you know, I moved to Florida and I'm so much happier here. I'm from New York and, you know, like that changed my, my life. Like that changed my quality of life so much. So that was like something really positive I did, but I did that like when I was 41, but still like, I still appreciate it today, you know, like just like the lifestyle I'm outside all the time. I'm really active, you know, and I, I, you know, stuff like that. It's just made me feel like so much more positive positive. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, really there's, you know, I just try to take care of myself. There's nothing I can do. I mean, as much as I don't want to get another minute older, you know, like I wrote no. in the story, I'm like, I turned 50. I didn't want to, it happened anyway. Yeah. You know, like, uh, just like, I think you just have to like take it day by day and just live and not be like, Oh, well, let's do that when we're older. Or let's do this, you know, in five years. No, like do it now. Like I started feeling like that. Mm-hmm. I started like doing more and I'm like, you like do it. Like, what are you waiting for? Yeah. If you can do it, you know, and don't, if it's something you really like, just fucking do it. You know, mm. people, a lot of people don't live. People don't do anything, <laughs> you know, really. And I'm like, just go hiking, go on this trip. You know, I like to travel a lot. Just, just go. If you can, if you have the time, if you can afford it, I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not waiting. You know, if I have an idea, I'm going to do it. Mm. So do you fear the possibility of a relapse still, or are you pretty much like, okay, I got this under control. Or is that always like, you know, I don't want to ever say that because I said that a long time ago when I relapsed again. Yeah. I think I have a really healthy fear of it because it does scare me because I can't stop and I don't want to ever go back to treatment and I don't want to ever be in such a low place, you know, where, and you know, I was focusing a lot also on like, Oh my God, like I'm going to be 50 and I'm getting high every day doing nothing with my life. And I really was like determined. I'm like, I have to get sober before I turn 50. Like I, I, it would just devastate me, you know, psychologically. Mm. So I wanted to like be, I didn't want to be that person. So, you know, that was like 47, 48 when I was, went out getting high all the time. I'm like, you, you can't, (laughs) like you just can't. Mm. Wow. Like it's hard. 50 is hard enough. Now you're going to feel like the biggest loser on earth. No. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, this has been really fascinating. Uh, yeah, it's got in a lot of directions and I've just found it so interesting. I have two final mm. questions for you. Uh, how much of this is is genetic? Because based on what you've told me, and I know that for some people, they've told me straight up, it is absolutely genetic. Um, but I didn't get that sense from anything that you've said. Oh, it is. It definitely, there is addiction in my family on, on definitely on one side without, you know, getting more into it in, yeah. in different variations you know gambling food that kind of thing mm. alcohol yeah wow. well um i want to finish with my final question which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable huh <laughs> what do you think yeah <laughs> you like that answer yeah great <laughs> what do you mean well, I mean, people have answered this question in so many ways, but, you know, just to, to, you know, give you some, you know, guidance here, like if you write a book called Unmistakable, you have to define it. And I define it as the thing that, you know, is so distinctive. Nobody else could do it, but you. Nobody else could what? And nobody else could do it, but you. Uh, oh, um, that's, I don't want to be that arrogant. <laughs> I think that. I, you know, I think I'm good at a bunch of things. No, I think that just being yourself, you know, I think that really, and I mostly have been, and then sometimes like I'll, I'll, I'll think about something I want to say or do. And I'm like, Oh, don't say that. Don't do that. You know, and mostly I don't hold back, but then I see other people do it. And I'm like, you should just do that. Be yourself. You know, don't ever question, don't ever second guess, you know, something that you want to say or do. And I think the best thing you could do is really be your true self. And because I see a lot of, especially like more women, or I see both men and women are trying to be who they think other people want them to be. And I find that to be such a turnoff personally. 
And I think everyone is like a unique person and don't try to be what you think other people want you to be, whether it's dating. I see that too. And that makes me so angry. Um, just, you know, be, be yourself and be proud. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story. And oh, this is great. Wisdom and insights <laughs> for the listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the book and everything else you're up to? Um, my book is called Don't Bring Your Vibrator to Rehab. And it is on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or anywhere books are sold online. My website is pamgaslow.com. And you can find me there, reach me there, and see more stuff I've done on there. Cool. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills 
whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.